You're listening to the Hayek Program podcast. This podcast includes audio from lectures, interviews, and discussions from scholars and visitors of the F.A. Hayek Program for Advanced Study in Philosophy, Politics, and Economics at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. To learn more about the Hayek Program, visit hayek.mercatus.org. To learn about graduate student fellowship opportunities with the Mercatus Center at George Mason University, for students at Mason as well as at universities across the globe, please visit students.mercatus.org. I, uh, you know, you, you have a string of students that have gone into varieties of uh, various activities associated with advancing these ideas and, and very amazing. Laura Group, who's one of them, when she came to graduate school, I used to refer to her all the time as crunchy granola. Right. Yep. I'd say like, hey, crunchy granola, come on over here <laughs> and talk about it. So, so I, I have no idea if she realized that was a term of endearment or if it was a, a term of I think she got it. <laughs> but, I'm sure she but, got uh, it. But I mean, and you know, and she herself has gone on. So it must be great joy. I mean, one of the things that's been I, I in my own career, and I think you probably share it as well, is to see uh, the success of some of the people that you've taught in the variety of ways they go about doing it, but in particular, the ones that sort of follow and become scholars and teachers and whatnot and seeing them, you know, shine and do all of that. I mean, obviously Virgil Storr was a very unique, you know, talent and has proven out to be a unique talent. You look at that and you're like, Oh my God, you know, right. Exactly. So. Exactly. I, and I take all the credit. I take 100% of the credit. You guys try to take the credit for Virgil. I'm, I'm claiming credit, man. Uh, he was, he was um, a Marxist when I met him, right? Yeah. You know, so I'm taking credit. No, uh, but seriously, uh, the, one of the greatest joys is when, um, as a scholar, is when you see people that you had the fortune of teaching. I mean, you know this. I mean, um, look at all of the – I mean – my examples are few, um, and they're great examples. You mentioned two, Groove and and Store, um, but they they matter because they're of the of the ripple effects that they're having, right? So yeah. Laura yeah. is um, continuing a tradition of empathetic teaching of markets at Beloit, right? Yeah. Um, and and Virgil. Uh, has you know linked arms with you to uh, foster an entire generation of new scholars who are doing fantastic work, not only as dissertation students, but then take that on and replicate that example. And that's that ripple effect um, that that you look at and you see just generations of students. I mean, thinking thinking through the impact that you've had, Pete on generation after generation, you now have not only students who are uh, doing great work, you've got grand students and you've got great grand students, I would imagine at this stage of the game, right? And we used to joke about that with Kirzner, right? Like Kirzner would come and come to and give talks at Mason, you know, and I'd say, you know, you're my, you're like my grand teacher, right? You know, cause, cause you were Don's teacher. And it's like, think of all the, the grand, students that you've got as a cascade of the work that you guys have that you've done at mason and 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 you've also the other important piece of it is that you have not kept all that glory for yourself you've recognized 
the spirit of like, oh, I can be doing good things. Imagine what we could be doing if we got scholars who had a different intellectual profile than I have, yeah. still committed to the ideas, still advancing classical liberal ideas, um, but coming at it for, with different different points of view. And the what you built at Mason is an incredibly sophisticated ecosystem um, that's created generation upon generation of, of students who are out there doing good work. Well, I, I, I appreciate you saying that. I do think it's, you know, we're, we, we you know, we, it, it was horrible that we lost on at such a young age, but it also led to a very firm commitment to kind of continue what he was up to and what he was trying to do. And I think that draws a lot of that. When you were talking about Laura, I just wanted to mention, I, you know, she had me out there to give some talks. And uh, I was just blown away by how dedicated a teacher she is, but also the impact that she has on students, meaning the content. So it's not, you know, so she's, she's this very compassionate teacher, but the kids learn serious content, you know, of economics yeah. as you're doing this. And you're a parent, I'm a parent, we have to write checks. So let's yep. go back to your dad, right? And the practical thing, we have to write a check to pay tuition for our kids to go to school. And one of the things I think is really true is that the people that come out of our circles are people that you'd be willing to write a check for. It's one yep. of the reasons why I write the letters of recommendation that I do, because I know that the people, wherever they're going to go, whatever school they're going to go, they're going to give you... A, a, a dedication to teaching and to your child that's on the other side that you're paying a lot of money for. And that could be, you know, at a good liberal arts college, 60 grand a year or, you know, just in tuition. Right. And then, exactly. and then, in, you know, at a, at a state university, you know, 20, 25, 30 grand a year or whatever, you're still writing that check out or you're taking out a loan to do that. And if you had teachers that just dial it in, you know, it would exactly. be horrible. And so one of the things I think our program is committed to, but, and that goes all the way back to Rich and Jack and Don from the beginning, is they, they never told us that teaching was a tax that you had yeah. to pay to do scholarship. It was teaching was your duty connected to your scholarship. And so yeah. I never thought of it as a trade-off or anything like that, because that's what I was told by the people that were educating me. And when I see you and your ability to do it, and when I see, you know, you remember this because, you know, I was a jerk to you and Steve because, you know, midway through your career, you guys were so successful, you were being drawn into administration. And, you know, to me, the opportunity cost of being an administrator is huge because look at you in the classroom, like you're doing all these great yeah. things. And so, you know, and I would say like, oh, no, you know, they're the enemy. Don't go to the dark side. <laughs> go to the enemy. But of course, exactly. we, need, we need people in the administration. Otherwise, you don't have the teachers and everything. And so, but like, uh, when I see Laura teach, the smile on my face goes from ear to ear. And it's not just because it's Laura and she was my student and, you know, I work with her and all that stuff. It's because I see a teacher that I would want my kids to have. Exactly, As, And I think that's, you know, right, right now, like I have a colleague, Rosalina Candela, it's the same thing. You watch him teach a course and you're like, all right, like if you ask me to pay $100,000 a year for my kid to go to school, but I know they're going to have that teacher. Yep. I'm like, you know, that's going to, that's worth it. That the experience it is. is worth it. And that's not true for most people that teach economics. 
You know, right. most people teach economics, it goes back to, you know, the old Ferris Bueller's day off, right? Where he's, you know, and the, guy, and, and, and the Stein, you know, goes up there, is, you know, Bueller, Bueller, you know? And, and so like that, you're like, I'm willing to pay $10 for that, you know, for my right. kids to get the degree. So I think there's something weird in the way that we've structured it. You continued it in your environment, Steve, you know, Dave. You know, if you look at someone like Scott Bullier, who ended up by working with you for a bit, you know, and Scott's a, a, a very successful administrator himself. But before he did that, he was an amazing teacher, right, yeah. in the classroom. And his teacher was Dave Perchicko, who was another yeah. Lavoie product. And so, you know, it's amazing, right? Yeah, and it is. And it also, one of the things that um, a, a Beloit College taught me, and, and, and maybe this isn't unique to small liberal arts colleges, um, I hope it's not, is that um, good teacher, the person for whom I'm the perfect teacher, I may not be that person for somebody else. And so that was both humbling, but also... Um, it also kind of took me, made me feel like I was taking, I could take myself off the hook. There, there's some students you just don't click with, frankly, yeah. you know? Yeah, yeah. And then when I would see that same student, you know, go across the hall, you know, and my, my department chair was a guy named Jeff, Jeff Adams, who uh, I'm still friends with. Um, uh, he was my, he was sort of a department chair for life. He, he was a committed guy who built, who, who, you know, Took it, took it on the chin to build a great department. His um, his orientation was um, that like I, I want to work with the serious serious students, and there was just shockingly sometimes he would say I, I don't know how you work so well with with that other student, and I would say well it's obvious how, how I can work with her, um, and then completely in the reverse there were people that I just couldn't click with. And he would find that thread, that, that, that seed of something that was promising in that student. And I couldn't see it. Or I, and if I saw it, I couldn't tap it. I couldn't develop it. Josh Hall, who I also had uh, the great fortune of, of teaching side by side with at, at Beloit, exactly the same. The, right. the chucklehead in the back of the room who never lifted, you know, his eyes above, um, you know, from under the baseball cap you know, who I would have written off, he would turn them into a young scholar. And it's just yeah. amazing patience. And so, um, and to me, that shows you that there is not just one avenue for being a great teacher, that we need pluralism in our approach. We need different personalities yeah. that, and, and, just, and just different sensibilities to bring to the task of teaching. And this is why small places like that matter. It's why, you know, a liberal education cannot just be one, you know, one input. Yeah. yeah. There's um, no one size fits all. No, yeah. no. And so it's a, it's, it's a, it's a deeply social process. And, and part of it is the diversity of human beings that come to the enterprise of teaching. Yeah. Uh, it's a very important point. And it's also a humbling point because it's not like you, there's a, you know, one method to do it. I guess I was maybe, stressing something of uniqueness, but I think the number one thing that you mentioned was you begin where they are yeah, as opposed to where you think that they should be. And if you do that, so, you know, going back to your earlier discussion in principles of economics, 
you know, sometimes people go into principles of economics and they, they're teaching the class as if the students should be where they want them to be rather than bringing them to where you would like to see them be able to do it, which begins where they are. But I wanted to go back to your research uh, because you were the, the, uh, the, you know, the critical lead scholar on the Katrina project, uh, which was a project in, um, you know, disaster response, you know, relief, recovery kind of examination, focusing on community and, and whatnot, but it was a kind of a development project is an, another way right. to think about it. And you employed uh, the, the kind of uh, uh, techniques that you developed in your development work as well uh, to examine that. And so, you know, and it was an immensely successful project. You published journal articles and some very, uh, a very respected and, and widely read professional journals. Uh, you published a, a book, uh, you have edited volumes, everything like that. So talk a little bit about, you know, that experience, what you learned from it. Uh, also, I should add, you know, I think that the work that you did with Nona and Virgil in the How We Came Back is, is you know, a true ethnography, right, in, 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 in so many ways. And there's so much to learn from that as a source of information for people that are doing the dismal science <laughs> that we, never, we tend to not ever look at. And, and so there's so many demonstration effects in the work that you did and the work you influenced. And so I wanted to just get you to talk a little bit about that and the project and everything. Sure. Um, but before I, you know, so I contribute my piece, I want to ask you a question. Um, you should describe how it was that you, because this was your vision, right? The Katrina project was your vision. How bring people back to that moment when you're like, okay, this is something that we need to do and we need to do it big. Yeah. Uh, I mean, you know, we, we had been developing for a while because of some USAID resources that we had through accidents of, history associated with me when I was at NYU and then I moved down here um, and I was involved with Mansur Olson's Institute over in Maryland back to when I was at NYU and Mansur Olson then passed away and the people at Maryland tried to replace Mansur with a typical development economist. The, the, the person involved actually used to work with Jeff Sachs at the Harvard Institute for Development. So it's the people at USAID were not necessarily scholars, but they understood there was a difference in the way that they were now talking about development economics and the way that Mantra Olson was talking about development economics. So they sliced off a portion of the grant and gave it to us, to the great chagrin of the people in Maryland, as you might imagine. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and so the big puzzle was bringing it to Mercatus was that this was going to be a government grant. And yeah. Mercatus doesn't accept government funding, you know, and, and so sure. this is a big issue. But nevertheless, we started this, this whole project on development economics and transition societies. At one time, we had, you know, students in, you know, from everywhere, from the Czech Republic to China, and uh, doing this, studying entrepreneurship and the impediments to entrepreneurship. And so in the process of doing that, you know, Virgil and I had published a paper in which we came in on this idea of what, you know, what we viewed as the tripartite aspects of development. So you have markets, 
you have the politics, and then you also have the social. So you have economic and financial, political and legal, and social and cultural aspects. And so then Katrina hit, and I, my mother-in-law was here. This is a very simple uh, question. And just like everyone else, we all sat there and watched in horror as this human tragedy is now unfolding, not in the newspaper, but actually on the TV 24-7. Right. And you're like, and my mother-in-law kept on asking, like, why? Mm-hmm. You know, why is this happening? Why is this going on like that? And I was just watching, and it's not like I had a conversation with her about it, but I was like, you know, like, we should have an answer to that. Yeah, that's a really good question. Yeah, that's a really good question. Like, we should really have an answer to that. And by the way, I don't think that answer is that much different from the answer I would have given on why it was that, you know, like the old question at the time, remember, was who lost Russia, you know, in the 90s, you know, because of what happened in transition. Or you look at the Czech Republic, which, of course, I think, you know, you visit it with, with Don as well in Prague and everything. And, you know, they had all the advantages of the reform and yet they still collapsed due to corruption and all kinds of other things right. like that. And so you're kind of like, you know, there's all these massive puzzles and now this is all being played out right in front of us. And so the original idea, because I'm simplistic, was I thought that maybe I could do like a very simple, you know, comparison between New Orleans and like Biloxi. Yeah, Mississippi. And then I was like, well, the conditions aren't the same, right? So that's not going to work. And so then I started talking. And unfortunately, Brian Hooks, you know, was my sounding board, because he was the one who helped direct and manage the global prosperity issue. And it's like, we look, we got to be doing something on this. It's this big project, they're going to have all these things. And so we started to think about it. And then we came up with this idea that we need to have a three pronged research approach which is the social and cultural, the economic and financial, and then the political and legal. And then it was quite easy how you would find the different people for the different pockets to lead it. And the one that had the greatest legs, I would argue, was your side of the project. Because when you do the social and cultural aspects, they bleed into then the legal and political and also the economic and financial. And so one of the things that we found was rather than these buckets being buckets that you could just isolate, to the extent that you isolate them, you actually miss the picture. So it ends up being cultural political economy has to be the way that you understand the lens in the economic and financial and the lens in the political and legal. And so we wanted to do a longitudinal study 10 years, uh, you know, over this time, you know, that became, as you know, that became more complicated because you know, a few years later, the global financial crisis hit. Right. And people are like, why do I care about Katrina anymore? You know? Exactly. But we kept at it. And, you know, when I add up the tally, you know, which not everyone does, but I do because I was the PI, as you said, on it. Sure. When I add up the tally of the books, the articles, the dissertations, and all these things like that, I'm kind of like, look, folks, you know, scoreboard, like it's a pretty damn progressive project that happened. I don't take credit for it. Because it really was the energy that you and other scholars that were involved. All of the contributors, that's right. But I think it's fascinating project in applied, going back to what you were saying earlier, applied social theory from a Hayekian point of view, grounded in economic reasoning, but not limited to, and certainly not economically imperialistic, but instead this kind of interdisciplinary 
you know, approach. But anyway, I'm talking too much. I, no, I, no, I, this is super it, helpful. It, and that's, book is, you know, book I, I wanted idea. people listening to this to have that context because then, you know, you see that part, that, that part of the vision was to do, you know, um, sort of, what I would call standard econometric work around the political economy questions, where the right. where the research question made sense to lend to quantitative analysis. That's what somebody on the team did, you know. So, um, you know, Russ's work, for example, um, right. was was right along. Dan Sutter's work on this was was um, uh, right on this. And the political economy of FEMA, for example, or the uh, National Flood Insurance Program. Right. You know, and all of the disincentives that that um, political economy would predict, guess what? It's playing out there. And so somebody needs to do that work to describe things that may not be particularly surprising, uh, but is really important that it's that this, the, that the concrete political economy insights that that were um, that we would expect it play out are playing out. And then the other, but, and then the, where the work for them. Can I ask you a quick sure. question on this? Because I, I don't know if you agree with me on this, but I would say that like, say if I look at your, your presidential address to the, to the SDAE and the discussion of the methodology kind of issues, I think the issue is, is that a lot of that traditional work that is, ne is necessary, but not sufficient. And the reason is, is because it answers what questions really well. Yep. But it doesn't ask, it doesn't answer why questions. Yeah. And those why questions come from someone that has, you know, your unique talents as an economist, as an empathetic and probing questioner, uh, a critical analyst that's able to see, you know, you know, you identified early on why a Nobel Prize winner was misunderstanding what was going to happen. So he was giving, yep. Thomas Schelling, Schelling was identifying a problem. And it's a decent problem, but he was identifying that you could only have one focal point answer to it, which is government has to do something. Right. And you came in and talked again, just like in your work on the, on female entrepreneurs in the community sharing credit system, a bottom up solution is possible here. And then you give these evidence of that, but you're only going to get at that if you're willing to open your eyes, ask probing and empathetic questions and listen to people talk about how they're going to do. And so your experience, I think, in looking at female entrepreneurs in Ghana gave rise to the ability to be alert to how it is that people in New Orleans are going to be able to solve their problems. Whereas Thomas Schelling, who's a genius, right, only sees one solution to it, you know, because he exactly. sees the disperse. And, and so to me, I think that those what questions are vital, but what separates really good social science is why questions. And you were at that right from the beginning. So I, I really, it was exciting to see. But that, and that's what made the project a, an opportunity of a lifetime too, because when we went in, we really didn't know what the answers were. We had right. some, we had some notions, like you say, you step into the environment and you think, well, maybe this is like a, a true natural experiment where you've got um, Mississippi policy versus uh, Louisiana policies, and and you see patterns like, oh, turns out the disaster was it was two totally different disasters. Um, turns right. out that you know having a um, a military base in Biloxi matters. Um, you know, right. all of these things. Uh, uh, the topography of the of the place matters in a terms lot. of what kind of damage is done, et cetera. Yeah. Um, so. Then what really started to hit us, we started hitting 
different neighborhoods. And what was clear is that there were different narratives and different patterns emerging across different different neighborhoods. And that's that's a social science scientist playground when you've got variation. Sure, you've got some explanations that um, are helpful, like, you know, those communities that had access to more financial resources have more um, ability to return quickly. Um, of, of course, you know, that, that makes sense. But there's still a tremendous amount of uh, variation that isn't explained by that. And in fact, some of the wealthier neighborhoods were much slower to come back than some of the poorer neighborhoods, not all of them. Well, what's going on there? And so really diving in and then really trying to focus in on what are the habits of association, for example, what are those non-financial resources that people are leveraging? And so the Vietnamese American community in New Orleans East was was a very early part of what we wanted to examine because that was a community that was you know, like if Tocqueville himself had sort of designed the um, the cultural capital, the social capital of that place, um, I don't think that you could have had something more well-suited to responding quickly and effectively in the wake of the hurricane. But with that said, there were other communities which, which didn't have that same template of that artist association who were still these scrappy social entrepreneurs figuring out ways to put their communities back together again, catch as catch can, leveraging all sorts of social capital resources in ways that will be completely invisible to you if you're just working with a large data set, right? Um, And so the large data set about who was coming back into which neighborhoods was super valuable so that we could see it too, right? Well, what is the, you know, besides what we see on the ground, what's the evidence say? There was a big project that tracked um, uh, mail delivery and that was, uh, that was a proxy for um, return rates. And that was really helpful. Yeah. Um, but then once you decide, you figured out where the patterns were, then you're right. Then you've got to lift the veil beneath that, that aggregate account and say, why are we getting that result? What are the levers of, 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 uh, of return, the levers of, of um, coordination that people can pull when it is a poor community and you don't have a lot of financial resources. And so that it was only by being there that we learned that things like the storytelling narratives of a community like the Vietnamese American community were, were critical. Um, the St. Bernard Parish uh, this was a similar sort of thing. We're telling the story about who we are as a community, and we're lever- and we're telling that story over and over again from the pulpit and on the radio, and um, you know, in, in things that are written in neighbor to neighbor. And those stories of who we are were critical for drawing people back. It was a resource in and of itself, as much as as much as the ability to to stroke a check for a contractor. That, and in some sense, even more so because. You know, I can stroke a check for a contractor on my own property, but I can't bring my neighbor back. But if I can tell the story of who we are as a community, I can then start to, to nudge my, um, my neighbors to reorient their plans that maybe they're thinking about staying in Shreveport. No, now that they're seeing some activity on the ground back in their home in New Orleans, that can happen. That means that I'm going to be reorienting my own activities away from staying in Shreveport and coming back to New Orleans. And those narratives were important, but also that sense of place was important, especially in places that 
were so criticized by the political pundits, the, uh, the um, you know, the Ninth Ward communities, for example, right. the upper and lower Ninth Ward. Uh, so many of the political pundits had said, oh, the reason why people aren't coming back is people didn't put place, uh, you know, a high degree of value or attachment to their communities because they um, were drug infested, et cetera. You know, it was BS, right? right. The people who came back were fundamentally committed to their community as places, not only that were, um, you know, good enough to come back to, they saw the, the, the essence of the good life as existing within yeah. that community. Yeah. And, and so by unpacking that, that the narrative over and over again of people who had returned to, to um, you know, some of the worst hit and some of the poorest communities, it was a story over and over again about sense of place, that there is something special about their New Orleans neighborhood, and they were going to do anything they could to get back. And so given that, what was it? There were people in, in Houston who were saying, I would give anything if I could come back. Other people were, you know, to be fair, were also saying, that was a hard place to be. I found a better life here in Houston, so I'm staying. But there were a lot of people who also said, if I could, my body's here in Houston, but my heart's still in New Orleans. If I could get back tomorrow, I would do it. Well, then what is it that's keeping you from coming back? It was major, major infrastructure things. It was that I'm looking after my elderly mother and she's on dialysis and without a hospital, I can't go back. Um, my kid's school hasn't opened. Without that, I can't go back. So there were things that we would, I think, appropriately turn to government to do, but it wasn't the kind of, hey, government come in and redesign our community. It was, no, 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 get the lights back on, get the, you know, help us get the hospital up, up and running. Um, yeah, schools up and running, also important. Those are the kinds of things that, uh, that if we want government to do something productive in the wake of crisis, it's those big things, um, the sort of public goodsy kinds of things. Um, but that, what that does is that it taps the capacity of the individual to then come back. Right. If you remove the giant tree or the um, the in the case of New Orleans, you know, you had, um, you know, 50 foot yachts that would be yeah, you know, stranded in the boats in the middle of in the middle of a, a thoroughfare. Well, right. if you can't get past it, you can't get to your property. You can't get to the home improvement right. center to get the get the materials you need. Government should do something to move that out of the way. Be why? Because that then taps the capacity of that person right. who's handy, who knows what they're doing um, uh, with respect to the trades and can come back and start improving their own property, other people's property. That sends the signal to those who are waiting on the sidelines. Oh, there is life back in my, in my hometown. I could, instead of signing a year long lease here where I am, I could start to make plans to go back. That is, and that is the direct response to Schelling's challenge is that, oh, there's no way that we're going to solve the collective action privately. Well, if you send the right signals from the bottom up, in fact, you get the virtuous cycle spinning in the right direction. Yeah. I, 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 I love that explanation. I want to make two points. One of them is, uh, so let me make the, 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 point I was going to make second first, though, which is that uh, just about a year or so ago, Raghu Rajan published a book called The Third Pillar. You know, so Raga, Rajan's a major economic thinker, 
And his big innovation in this book is that economists talk a lot about states and a lot about markets, but they don't talk enough about community. So we're not going to make progress until we start talking more about community. And I'm like, duh, <laughs> like we've been doing that. Like what's going on here? And, you know, and, and so there's a communication issue that I would like to ask you about, which is how do we communicate that our emphasis on this so that other people can recognize it. And then that leads me to my, my, my first question that came up when I was thinking about it, when you were describing the project is that going all the way back to Don actually, but then really in the way we operationalized the development project, we were all pursuing a multiple methods methodology. We were recognizing that large scale, you know, econometric studies have useful information that, um, you know, they might not test the theory, but they give us a lot of illuminating information that we need. Uh, we, uh, we recognize that uh, case studies are very important. We can even learn from lab simulations. Don was doing simulations, you know, back in the, in the in late 80s or whatever. He was already doing the high-tech Hayekian simulation kind of idea. And so we're drawing on all this kind of multiple methods methodology. I'm going to bring that to bear on an important question, big question like you were asking, like a big question, but with a, a focused case, which is New Orleans and coming back. And, and, and so what, is, what do you see as the biggest challenge to young scholars, given that you have major theorists of economics like Raghu Rajan saying, we have to study community, right? Or some other people, you know, Glazer or whatever. We have to study social entrepreneurship. We have to, you know, these kind of right. things. And then we're actually doing that in this multiple method methodology. <clears throat> and you're a young person and you want to build a career doing these kind of things and giving voice to the people. What do you think are the biggest challenges? I mean, the rewards we've already talked about because they're just in the way that you, when you communicated what you learn. Those are the rewards in and of themselves. But how about like, talking to your colleagues across social sciences and, and whatnot. Do you have any? Yeah, so, so I think that it's the challenge is to, um, to look, if, if others are catching on and saying things like, uh, you know, we need to study community and we need to study, um, you know, what people know and learn um, from the ground up and they're, they're saying it as if this is some new revelation, let, fine, great, you know, um, I agree with you. <laughs> say, oh, wow, you have, the scales have fallen from my eyes. Thank <laughs> you so much. And in fact, you know, I'm going to now orient my, um, my research program, um, as a response to your call. Thank you so much. Right. So that, that would be the first thing. And then try and get them to write a blurb for your book. Um, <laughs> so just, just take what, I, you know, because it's take whatever you can, um, yeah. as a gift, um, as, and then, and then use it as a platform to, to advance your ideas. You don't need to have the credit for, um, you know, having already, already been there, being right? There what you, yeah. yeah, for being there first. It doesn't, it, it doesn't really matter that much. And, and, um, just be excited about the fact that some, that other important, important scholars are taking that kind of work seriously. And then literally try to meet them, you know, try to get your work in front of them because in fact, if they, you know, there's nothing better than seeing, um, you know, someone else take your work seriously. And if, and if you're, if you're showing that to them, 
um, you know, that that's what we want to do. And then also, you know, call I, IHS and say, you know, you know, what would be really great, Emily, is uh, <laughs> if um, uh, there was an opportunity where I could be at a colloquium and this person was there and I got to be there. Great. You know, let's let's figure that out, because that's yeah. part of what the magic is of developing an intellectual community is um, is is developing a community of affinity. So don't one of the pieces of advice I ignored early on, which I which was um, just because I was intimidated, was I had something where I criticized something Friedman said. And the advice was, why don't you contact Friedman? And, you know, and see what he thinks. I was just like, oh, no, I'm not doing that. That was dumb, right, on my part, right? It, it was, um, uh, it was silly and, 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 you know, born out of, out of intimidation and fear. And it's like, if I had it all to do over again, I would, I would overcome those kinds of um, fearful imp impulses. Um, worst that happens year... is that he ignores you, you know, yeah, so yeah. what? I spent a year at, at, um, out at the Hoover Institution at Stanford. And Friedman was there all the time, constantly. Mm -hmm. And I would, and Hoover had a practice of at four o'clock in the afternoon, you went and got coffee and cookies. So they laid mm -hmm. cookies out in this, in this, what's called the Hoover's Commons room. And I would just sit there and watch Friedman in debate because he loves the debate. And one day there was a very, very, very rigorous debate going on. And he turned to me in the middle of the debate and he said, well, what do you think? And I said, the same as you. And he just went up. It was the worst response I ever could have given because I should have found some way to argue with him because that was the point of the realm for him. And I was Instead too intimidated. Instead, you went all fanboy. Yeah, I was too intimidated. I went completely. I was like, yeah, this, whatever you're saying, I'm 100% on board. He's like, who the hell is this clown? You know, and he moved on. So, um, and so I agree with you. That's the biggest missed opportunity. And among people at, at GMU at the moment, the one person who always took advantage of those opportunities better than anyone is Pete Leeson. So yeah. Pete would argue with anyone that was in, you know, and it never dawned on him that he was like arguing, or, you know, his arms might be too short to box with God. And so he was going to, but I'm always amazed at it. Cause again, like I'd introduce him to people that I've known for 20 years, but I've known really in a very shy way, like, yeah. Oh, you know, your work is great you know, like, and never challenge him. And Pete would meet him in five minutes in the meeting with him. He's like, yeah, you know, that paper you wrote, it's all wrong, you know. And then all of a sudden, you see their eyes light up, and they're like engaged, and they want to, you know, I mean, they're, they're intellectuals too, and they want to argue That's about right. these things. So anyway, I wanted to ask you, I, I mean, I, I just, I want to, you know, I greatly appreciate, I can't tell you how much I appreciate what you did in that project and the work that came out of it. Um, even to this day, we're still, you know, lots of people are working on those topics and continue to write papers and, and actually books and, and everything. And that all comes out of the work that you did on that and then the team that you helped create and out of that and everything. So it was, uh, it was really, uh, it, it continues to pay great dividends. So thank you very much for that. Um, and hopefully we'll continue to have new scholars. I mean, I just was on a dissertation just last week that was all on social capital and building up, you know, issues from your work. So uh, Alex Craig, I don't know if you've met Alex, but you know, he's, um, he's working on those kind of issues. So it's still very live and a very big part of what we're up to. 
I wanted to switch gears and go back to your role that you're now playing a little bit, but also the background in doing it. I made a, a flippant remark about administrators, but the reality is, is that, you know, universities and colleges are precious things and they need leaders and yep. they don't just need faculty who are consumers. <laughs> Right. So that's the biggest problem is that is that, you know, universities have become tremendous consumption goods for the faculty that work at them. Right. And, and, and but we need leaders and we need actually real leaders. And, and you are a passionate defender of liberal education. And that was represented in your position at Washington College, uh, where you're a provost and and now in your position as leader of the Institute for Humane Studies. This is before even COVID hit you're a defender of liberal education. You're a defender of the liberal arts of trying to communicate that as it relates even to issues like the way we relate to one another, true democratic interactions that were one another's dignified equals and we need to talk to one another. It's again, a very Lavoyan idea. I, I describe, you know this, but I've described Lavoie's approach to libertarianism as not you know, natural rights, first principle libertarianism or non-aggression, but dialogical libertarianism, which is all about what are the preconditions under which we interact with each other as, as you know, human. this is why the Habermas thing is so important, right? And so you're this defender of inquiry, of freedom, at the same time, understanding the limits and the nature of the universities and stuff. These are very hot button debates. And you've had a position in all of those, both pre-COVID and then post-COVID. And so one of the things I cry, I mean, I literally, it's, I went to a small liberal arts college. And I cry when I think, see things like Ithaca College having to lay off 130 faculty or Allegheny College in Western Pennsylvania actually perhaps maybe not being able to survive. It's been a college for over right. 200 years. I understand, you know, in, in competitive things, they go in, they go out. But sure. there's something about these things that I don't want to see go away. Uh, but yet they're being, they're, you know, their, their, their business model is, is quite problematic. The pressure from COVID and, and is, is also raising it. So what do you see as the biggest challenges to liberal education? First, just prior to this crisis and now in the wake of this crisis, and what can we do as citizens, as parents, as participants in this to try to address these challenges? Yeah, I think it's it's important to underscore that it's uh, you know November what fifth, uh, two thousand twenty, and like we'll know a lot more in another month or in another semester right. or you know in another year. And so anything I say now can look idiotic in in uh, a couple months time. Um, but you're absolutely right. The financial the financial uh, crisis is very real, and it and it's um, and it will be an existential crisis for a lot of a lot of institutions. Um, it, you know, that that's not insightful, though. Um, you know, that's not any any special insight. I think one of the things that we are learning, though, is that there is a that there are pressures um, that have come or that have been magnified because of a a lack of innovation within the higher ed industry. And by that, I don't mean oh, you know, faculty have not wanted to go do online classes and, you know, now they're getting their comeuppance kind of thing. It's not that. Um, though that's a version of, of innovation, which should be part of the mix for sure. Uh, uh, I'm, I'm really thinking more around our structures uh, and our incentives of, um, of 
I get that we need uh, and we need structures that hold uh, universities and colleges accountable because the people who pay the bills uh, aren't necessarily the people who are in a good position to identify quality. Um, so I get that it's a it's a constant challenge to um, uh, to figure out whether and how institutions are really keeping their promises to um, uh, to the students and the, and the families that pay the bills, um, but our solutions to that problem have been fairly top down. Um, it's it's um, uh, regional accreditation, um, state straight uh, state accreditors. So even private institutions, because they're kind of part of a statewide um, uh, a governance process, like even at a private college, I had to apply to the state um, before I could start a new major in communication arts. Um, why? Because it was essentially that the state didn't want too much competition of that discipline in, uh, against, uh, against other institutions. And so it would put your proposal in front of essentially your competition say, is this really needed? And lo and behold, lots of people said, no, this is not really needed. I've got, <laughs> you know, I, I've got my own program in that same thing. And frankly, we don't, you know, so it's this, this, this um, theater of pretending like we can know what the optimal allocation of um, communications programs are. Um, well, that's, that's crazy making. That's, that's um, uh, completely silly to anyone who knows anything about political economy. And you see, you see what's really going on there. It's a crony capitalist kind of play. Um, but you can't really do anything about it, right? So you just kind of play, play your part. You, 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 you play the, um, you do the theater of, of demonstrating the need for your new program because that's the, you know, rather than fighting the, the um, behemoth, you just play along with it. And then you yeah. hope, hope that your little program kind of scrapes by. That was in the context of a private institution. Um, I can only imagine that it's worse in public institutions. So, uh, so that tells us that I use that example just to demonstrate that the processes of, of accreditation, by the way, I think most people who join in to committees that are visiting um, accreditation committees, I think that their heart is in the right place. I think that they really do believe that they're doing the work of the Lord kind of thing. Um, but, but the parameters of what good looks like are so cookie cutter that you can't do anything innovative. That what it means is that if you've got something that's a real kind of leading edge sort of strength of your institution, it's going to stay on the margin because you can't afford to kill the, you know, pick your, pick your program. You can't afford to kill the geology program that has no students, that has a lackluster faculty. You can't kill it because of entrenched interests, both on the faculty, but also um, because it's, it's the accreditors then peer in and say, well, why are you getting rid of that program? And, and it's bigger than just one little program too. If you found a way to say, you know what, we really don't need to spend $10 million on a library. We can find those resources some other way. Well, you know, the library lobby, you know, starts to go berserk and, and they wanna make sure that that box is checked on the accreditation standards that you have to have the physical library. Well, the, that is the kind of thing that little, um, standard after standard creates rigidity. And that, and I think what COVID has done 
is doing for us is pointing out that the, that the system of rigid expectations have made it so that, that a lot of institutions can't be nimble. Now they've, they've just conformed to the cookie cutter model and they can't undo that in real enough time that allows them to be nimble and survive. So that I see as a real problem. And I don't, I don't know um, what the solution there is, but I do think that, that one possibility that could be a good outcome to come from this is that um, we dismantle the accreditation process. And, and that doesn't mean that we throw accountability out the door, but we've got to figure out a better way to do it. Yeah, that's an interesting diagnosis having to do with uh, stifling of innovation. Because one of the things that I guess that, you, that, that strikes one when they study the industry that we're both part of, which is that the lack of new schools Right. So we have had new state schools. Right. So in the last 50 years, you hear a lot of. But when was the last time we had a new Stanford? Right. Or, you know, a new MIT or something like that. You know, and you would expect that, especially with the digital age, you would have had more and more and more of them rather than right. just, you know. So we get them there in the space race or the Cold War. You get or, you know, the GI Bill, you get this expansion of state universities because, that's what seems to make sense, but where is the innovation in education from private sources that are coming up with new ways, streamlined ways or whatever? I, 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 I'm, not, I'm not knowledgeable enough to say, but I think it's probably there's, in the you know, last 50 years, you could probably count the number of truly innovative private institutions in higher education as being under a handful, maybe, I don't know. Right. Um, yeah. But it should be, it seems like it should be, you know. I mean, and we should have a lot more. I, and I, don't get me wrong. I think that, you know, it's great that people who otherwise wouldn't have access to, you know, online um, curricula, it, it's, it, that's great. Um, but at the same time, it's, uh, people are also recognizing that that is not, that tends not to be the optimal way for your typical 18 to 22 year old to, yeah, to learn. Yeah. And, uh, and place matters and camaraderie matters and, um, and this recognition that for most of us, unless you're an autodidact, most of us, uh, liberal education and acquiring a liberal education is a deeply social process. Yeah, these Both peer with effects. Our peers, the yeah. peer effects are huge. The, the, um, uh, the, the time that you can get FaceTime with a human being um, uh, is, is, uh, and build that connection and trust so that when you get that paper back and it's got red all over it, um, that you actually trust that the person who's giving it to you, you have some affinity for them. You actually kind of want to impress them. That right. matters in whether or not you're actually going to learn from that, that person's mentoring. I have in my, uh, in, uh, I have a book coming out this year. And in the uh, preface to the book, I talk about my friends in academia and I go through a bunch of different people. And then I talk about the books, you know, the ongoing conversation I had. But when you think about it, the reason why I ended up by having friendships, quote unquote, with those books is because of a real person guiding me to understand and learn how to read, right? I mean, this is a, you know. Um, so we talked about the institutional aspects. How about intellectual challenges that a liberal education confronts today, as you see it, uh, or to be lib uh, like a liberality and intellectual temperament? 
that's going on in our society. And, and, and you've been a major person trying to get us to figure out ways to have vigorous debate, but at a lower temperature. Does yeah. that make sense to say yeah, that? Exactly. that way? So like talk a little bit about that because I think it's such an important aspect of what it means to be a citizen within a self-governing democratic society. Yeah. It's fashionable right now to, uh, to, to um, declare that liberalism has failed or that liberalism is inadequate to um, addressing uh, the social justice issues of our time, et cetera. Um, but let's keep in mind that higher education is a legacy of liberalism, that it is a fundamentally liberal institution. And by that, I mean, it is a, it, it draws directly from the enlightenment insight that it is through our exchange of ideas that progress happens, right? Intellectual progress, but also then like literally real world progress that, that if you think about, um, uh, uh, Joel Machier's work, for example, about the, the sort of intellectual sources of um, innovation in the world, you won't get the innovation in the world, you won't get the opportunities for human flourishing if you don't have these kinds of incubators for, uh, and they don't need to necessarily look exactly like what we've got right now, but, but something that looks like an institution where you have a commitment to the liberal and open exchange of ideas. That legacy of, of, the, of liberalism is taken up no more so than in the American higher education system. And so I, want, I always wanna be cautious about, you know, I, I don't wanna suggest that there was some golden age that we wanna to return to. Sure. Um, uh, because I think that every age of every major institution is fraught in some way. That said, I do think that it's in really important to remind scholars, no matter where they sit on the ideological spectrum, that they owe their position to advance ideas in the world in a way that is uh, without fear and without um, a sense of, um, you know, without a sense that, that, uh, that everything's contingent because they're doing so in the context of higher education. And so when we see critiques of liberalism, um, especially in higher education, there's some deep irony in that because the very context that gave them the position to develop their critique of liberalism is liberal. an institution that is fundamentally a liberal institution. Yeah. I, I, that's I, one insight, is that, is that liberal education is liberal. Yeah, I think that's a great point. Um, I'm mindful that that I've I've kept you on for a long time. I, I and you're a bit, very busy person, so I just want to ask one last question to you, which is that uh, both you and I are proud graduates of this program that Mercatus has has established. We now, when we were going through it, it was called the Center for the Study of Market Processes. Um, it's now grown to this academic and student programs, uh, and uh, we're no longer in the little closet with the with the seminar table where your chairs bumped up to the wall or whatever uh, and all right things but uh, and, and now you're you know running the, the the sister institution that you know had moved from Palo Alto to, to George Mason to to form this I mean it's amazing to think about the vision that Rich Fink and you know Walter Grinder and these people had back in the 80s when they were going to try to you know have all of this 
And so I just was wondering, you know, you know, how do you see, you know, where you're at today, where we're going, the, 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 the challenges that you find as inspiring? So not the ones that you find, like the, the ones that keep you still up at night, like that first yeah. 18 year old or whatever, Emily, that, you know, had Lavoie and said, I'm staying up at night. What is the equivalent of that now in your challenges that you face running IHS and, and seeing these ideas and, and whatnot as, as children of, you know, there's a, in philosophy and, and whatnot, they refer to people as children of Habermas or children of this or whatever. I view you and I as children of Lavoie. We're trying yeah. to develop these ideas and, and what keeps us going. So. so one of the things about being a child of Lavoie is that you took ideas on the left really seriously, even though there was a, you know, clearly an emphasis on Austrian economics and free market economics, et cetera. Um, you, if you were a student of Lavoie, you took the left and its commitments seriously. And that just was just sort of normal course. That was, a t that was the typical Tuesday um, in the Center for the Study <laughs> of Market Processes. And, and so what, what, I'm what I see that is so worrying now um, in the world and in the academy is that people with whom um, others disagree it's not just about it's, disagreement isn't just a disagreement that, you know, it, that should be the source of like fun, right? That, that, oh, you like big ideas too. And you're seeing the same world I'm seeing and coming to a different conclusion. Let's talk, right? right. Um, that's the, that's the spirit of the scholar is, and, and that's the kind of scholar who's the real deal. Um, what I'm seeing increasingly though, is that there is um, a litmus test of which side of the divide you're on, if you're on the other other side of the divide, not only are you sort of categorically mistaken, and so therefore I just need to dismiss you. Um, worse, you're evil, right? You're on the side of you're on the side of darkness and, and evil doing, and that that I see, um, I you know that I see in the academy on, you know, on both sides. I see it in public intellectual spaces on both sides. We see it in journalism on both sides. And that's the thing that I worry about, not just because it's, it's unpleasant to be part of that world, but because that orientation is like acid on the common ground of liberalism. And that common ground of liberalism, it's good when it's a common ground, it's, it, it, because it's, it means that I don't have to worry about it. Like it's like the floor beneath my feet when I wake up in the morning, you know, in, in the sort of in the heyday of the, the sort of post-1989, um, post-fall of the Berlin Wall, it's kind of like, yeah, you know, it just, you can take for granted that what we want is a pluralistic, tolerant society of dignified equals. That's what the liberal project is. We can take that for granted. And the problem is, because we took it for granted, we forgot how to defend it. Yeah. And that's the thing that keeps me up at night. Um, because when we forget how to defend it, that means that our major institutions of political liberalism, economic liberalism, educational liberalism are really in jeopardy. Yeah. And so, you know, we, we see the illiberalism in the world as being problematic, but we have a duty as liberals to remind ourselves and to remind others about what it looks like to defend liberalism. And so when I think about those early um, origins of the Center for the Study of Market Processes, you know, like 
you know, Lavoy being chief among them, if he were here, I know that he would see this as his calling, right? I, I feel yeah. pretty confident in saying, you know, he would be joining with you and with me and the folks at Mercatus and the folks at IHS and saying, okay, we need a new liberal fusion. Liberals will have, will find lots of things to disagree about, but at the end of the day, we should still be reminding one, our, one another that we are liberals. And if we start there, if we draw the circle around, instead of the dividing line of, of, of where we disagree, if we draw the circle around where that common ground is, that common ground of liberals who are the you know, small government conservative liberals, also the left of center liberals, the classical liberals, we are part of that same family. Like any family, we have disagreements, but remind ourselves occasionally that we are part of that same family and that we need to defend it. Um, that I think is the project that it is um, exciting me and also um, in some ways terrifying me because I think it's so essential that if we fail, that's terrifying. Uh, but it's also uh, the work that I can't think of anything more, I can't think of any more important work to be doing. Well, that's a wonderful point to end on, Emily. That was a, uh, a wonderful uh, discussion with you. Uh, thank you very much uh, for this. And uh, Thank you, Pete. I, I really appreciate it. I really appreciate it. And thank you for everything that you're doing to inspire that next generation of graduate students uh, who can learn from your model. Thank you for listening to the Hayek Program podcast. To learn more about the research, scholars, and work of the Hayek Program, visit hayek.mercatus.org. For more information about graduate student fellowship opportunities for students at Mason, as well as at universities across the globe, please visit students.mercatus.org. We hope you recommend students to our programs or consider applying yourself.